Well, as I've been talking about in September, I hope we're going to start the book of Ephesians. And before we started, though, I wanted to preach a couple sermons. Uh, one on worship. We preached that last week. Loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. It was a very practical thing that you should do afterwards, which Karen Allen knew, and that is ask yourself, did I serve the Lord our my worship. And then I thought this week I could talk about the horizontal part about that, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, about fellowship and about one very practical thing that you could do, worship and fellowship. And so I thought, well, I'd like to revisit a topic I preached on years ago, and that is the most neglected commandment in the Bible. So Lord Jesus, I ask that you would help us to preach, all of us, in your name, Amen. It was about 19 years ago that I went to my first ever parent-teacher conference. My son Jonathan was in kindergarten. Susan and I went and met with his teacher, Miss Colwall, a recent graduate of the University of Colorado, as you know, an institution that's known as a paragon of virtue. And <laughs> I remember Ms. Kowal started out the parent-teacher conference by saying, your son is doing qu quite well. And I, I just breathed a, a sigh of relief, looked at, at Susan, and then she said, but. <laughs> but uh, there is a problem. Actually, there was an incident. I, I remember I, I imagined in my mind worst possible case scenario, and, and then she began to describe what happened. She appeared to be very concerned. She said, I was reading the story it was during story time. I was reading the story and I remember I paused and turned a page, looked up, and I saw your son just kissing Katie Tatalini. <laughs> during story time. He kissed her. He just leaned over and kissed her. He, during story time, he stopped. He just leaned over and kissed her on the cheek. And I remember she stopped and she looked at us waiting for a response. And, and Susan and I just kind of looked at her like not knowing what to say. And then I remember she finally just said, that is inappropriate. I remember I, I kind of said, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> and we left a little confused. I've been confused ever since second grade when I kissed Leslie Brown in a tree out in front of her house and all the kids on the bus sing K-I-S-S, a two little lover sitting in a tree, you know. It was immediately after that, just I remember a little time after that, that I looked in the Rocky Mountain News and I read um, a story about a fellow named Jonathan Previtt, sex offender, convicted by the authorities. Jonathan Previtt was separated from his class at Southwest Elementary School in Lexington, Kentucky and banned from the class ice cream social. The school was very concerned about securing federal funds and therefore following federal guidelines re regarding sexual harassment. You see, Jonathan Previtt, six years old, same age as my son Jonathan, had kissed a girl in class on the cheek because, and I quote, I liked her. That's what they all say. <laughs> There's a picture of him in the Rocky Mountain News, pudgy little cheeks, coke, Coke bottle glasses. I found the picture online. That's him right there. You can see it. Predator. <laughs> written, written right across his face. Well, you know, it's kind of easy to snicker at Southwest Elementary School in Lexington, Kentucky, or, or Miss Colwall down at Shelton in, in Golden. 
It's easy to snicker until you spent some time with someone that's been sexually abused. Someone very, very close to me was sexually abused by a deacon in our church growing up. I've had the privilege of working with several women that were sexually, ritually abused in just horrific ways. I don't remember any of them mentioning anything about kissing, but we know what kissing can lead to and what a Jonathan Previtt can become. And let me tell you that the pain inflicted through sexual abuse is truly so horrifying, so extensive, we ought to do absolutely everything in our power to stop it. In Romans 13, Paul argues that God has instituted governing authorities to carry the sword for the common good. And so as a society, we ought to have laws and we ought to have safeguards and we ought to have sexual harassment policies. Here at the sanctuary, we have a sexual harassment policy in the church employee manual. I think it's on page 17. I discourage the staff from meeting with members of the opposite sex in a closed room alone. We do background checks on everyone that helps out with children's ministries downstairs. In the United States, you know, we have some of the very best laws in the world regarding sexual harassment, sexual predation, and, and, and yet we're still the number one producer of pornography, and, and, and we're hardly like a, a paragon of sexual virtue. I mean, maybe we need better laws. Maybe we need more laws. Maybe we need laws against kissing, like in Saudi Arabia or Iran. Or maybe we just need to enforce the laws that we've already got. I, I found this website, and, and it turns out that in Colorado, did you know in Colorado it's still illegal to kiss a woman on Sunday? It's true, according to this website. It's still illegal to kiss a woman while she's sleeping in Colorado. In Boston, Massachusetts, it's illegal to kiss a woman in front of church. And now that makes some sense when you begin to understand uh, the biblical view of sexual purity. I mean, it was Jesus who said, everyone who even looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. I mean, that is intense, but incredibly hard to legislate. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians contains the most extensive um, discussion of church legislation or church discipline in all the New Testament. Paul tells the church to discipline this guy who was having sex with his mother-in-law and bragging about it at church. Well, thanks, that's helpful, Paul, but it would help if we got some guidelines, some rules maybe for the stuff in between lustful intent and braggadocious sex with your mother-in-law in church, right? Know what I mean? I mean, when I was a youth pastor, I remember we spent hours and hours, uh, Bert may remember this, uh, youth by scouring the New Testament for, for scriptures that would give us some kind of rule, some kind of guidelines, some kind of legislation to help the kids answer the question, how far is too far? And in the end, we just made stuff up. Because <laughs> you see, the New Testament has an extremely high standard of sexual purity, and yet one that's almost impossible to regulate through legislation. Well, anyway, in all the New Testament, 1 Corinthians contains the most detailed discussion of sexual purity. And I suppose that makes sense because of all the churches and cities in the New Testament, it was Corinth that struggled the most with sexual sins. In fact, Paul writes his letter to the Corinthians in tears over their sins and in tears over their rejection of him. And then he ends his letter with, with a commandment, imperative tense. In other words, this is not an option, it's a commandment. He ends his letter with this commandment, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 20b, greet one another with a holy kiss. 
holy do this, greet one another with a holy kiss. What the heck? I mean, after all that, in, in, all, in all the possible places, in all the possible letters, greet one another with a holy kiss. And so we think, well, surely that must be some sort of anomaly. Second Corinthians ends this way. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Chapter 13, verse 12. Paul, don't you know that's illegal in the state of Colorado on Sunday? The highly theological treatise of Romans ends with two chapters of greetings and this verse, greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, surely that's for like old nuns or something, right? Paul ends 1 Thessalonians this way, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. That is, holy kiss all of them, holy kiss them. And so we think, well, gosh, then holy must mean like without feeling, right? Antiseptic, no passion, no feeling. Well, St. Peter reveals what the holiness is. First Peter 5, 14, greet one another with the kiss of love, agape. Now, he doesn't say eros, it's not erotic kisses, but that doesn't mean, uh, agape doesn't mean that the kisses have no feeling. In fact, maybe it's just the opposite. You remember in Luke chapter 17, Jesus, okay, the guy who said this stuff about lust, he lustful intent anyway, he's 30 years old and he's single, okay? He's at a dinner with the religious uh, authorities is at this fancy dinner and this woman from the city, probably a prostitute, crashes the party and begins anointing his feet with, with, with tears and covering his feet with kisses. I mean, that is highly inappropriate. And so uh, Simon, the, the Pharisee, giving the banquet, he gets all indignant about it. And when he does, Jesus gets all uh, upset with Simon saying that he needs to be more like that woman. See, the Pharisees had a really hard time with kissing. They kissed, uh, it appears, but, but it was highly regulated through religious legislation and propriety. So if you're thinking the kissing commands are, are you know, just cultural, I'm sure there's a cultural element. However, it, it may be working in just the opposite direction that we would suppose. In, in fact, the most thorough and well-respected of all Bible dictionaries, the ankle, an, anchor, not ankle, <laughs> anchor, anchor Yale Bible Dictionary has this to say about the holy kiss. There is a general agreement that the holy kiss had its origin in the practices which emerged in the early church among the believers themselves, with the impetus probably coming from the shape of their life with Jesus himself. Nothing analogous to it is to be found among any Greco-Roman societies, nor indeed at Qumran. That's the Jewish community that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. You see, the, the kissing commands were not social custom. They appear to be Jesus' custom. It's also clear that the early church took them quite literally. The kiss of peace became an integral part of the church liturgy. There were kisses at baptisms, funerals, ordinations. Most important, the kiss at communion, at body broken and blood shed. And it was customary to kiss the martyros in prison, the witnesses that were about to be killed, and even more, to kiss them, to go to prison and kiss them on their wounds, their body broken, their blood shed. Tertullian, the church father, asked if any prayer could be complete apart from the holy kiss. But within a few hundred years, Clement of Alexandria complained that the churches were full of nothing but the sound of kissing. And so by the third century, when the church went political, kisses were no longer allowed between the sexes. In the 13th century in Britain, makes sense it's in Britain, get this. In the 13th century in Britain, they finally stopped kissing people and substituted an antiseptic kissing tablet called an osculatorium. A uh, Catholic encyclopedia says that they had people kiss the tablet so the kisses wouldn't be promiscuous. <laughs> But really, that means the kisses wouldn't be kisses, right? 
In the Eastern church, they still kiss kisses, or kiss, they still kiss, but they, but they kiss icons, they kiss little statues, and, and I doubt that those kisses look much like the kisses of that, that woman at the house of Simon so long ago. Here in America, even at the most Bible-thumping, literalistic churches, if, if, you, if you were to just show up and go around and kissing everybody, start kissing everybody with the kiss of love in obedience to sacred scripture, I bet you money they'd call the police. They'd kick you out. Now some of you I know are sitting there a bit terrified. (laughs) You're terrified, aren't you? Because you think I'm gonna make you kiss this stinky person, (laughs) stinky person sitting next to you. And I'm not. And before we go any further, I want to make one thing extremely clear. And, And I want you to listen extremely well. If you think anyone in this church, other than your husband or wife, but including your father and mother, kisses you in a way that feels at all erotic, and you tell them to stop, but they don't immediately back off, I want you to tell me, or tell one of our board members, and we will enact church legislation, church discipline. Is that perfectly clear? In fact, I wanna hear you say it. Yes, Peter, that is perfectly clear. On three, ready, one, two, three. Good. But we still have to deal with the biblical text. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And that obviously raises a question, but um, gosh, Peter, uh, isn't that dangerous? Answer, yes. Kisses are dangerous. Obedience is dangerous. Love is dangerous. Kisses are dangerous. Obedience is dangerous, but disobedience is even more dangerous. You you know the most famous story Jesus probably told is is a kissing story? Do you remember that? Lights flashing on me, because that means this is important. (laughs) (laughs) Just, Just went out. With the glory of God. But, the, but the, most, the most famous story that, that Jesus tells is the story of the prodigal son. And, and a better title of that story would be the story of the prodigal father or the prodigal kisser. You remember that the son goes to his father and he says, Father, give me the share of the inheritance that falls to me. In that day and age, that was like going to the father and saying, Dad, I wish you were dead and I want your stuff. And the father gives the son his stuff. And the son goes off to a distant land where he squanders uh, the, all, of, all, of that, all of that money on profligate living. The older brother says that he squanders it on uh, prostitutes. In other words, immoral, erotic kisses. And now you do understand that e- erotic kisses are not necessarily immoral, right? I mean, in fact, in the covenant of marriage, they're mandatory and holy. They're a sacrament of fidelity that pictures our exclusive fidelity to Jesus, our bridegroom, a sacrament of fidelity. But outside of marriage, they become something like an evil sacrament of infidelity. Well, anyway, this son blows his inheritance on profligate, profligate hookers, unholy kisses, and, and then he, he, he returns uh, with this depraved plan. If you read it carefully, you realize that he's not returning with a good heart. He's returning with this, with this plan uh, in order to get his father's stuff, to become an employee and get his father's stuff, but he doesn't want to be his father's son. 
He returns with a hard heart, but the father sees him coming in the distance. And when the father sees his son coming down the road, he, he leaves the town, runs through the village, runs out onto the road, and before the son can say anything, before the son can do anything, he grabs him, hugs him, pulls him to himself, and begins to kiss him. He, he doesn't say, okay, now we need to lay down the law, but before he can do anything, he just kisses him, kisses him, and kisses him over and over and over again. The Bible really has two words in the New Testament for kiss. One just means kiss, and one means like super duper kiss. He super duper kisses him, kisses him over and over and over, and at that point, the boy crumbles. He repents, and he longs to be a son, a son of his father, the prodigal kisser. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. But you see, the father heals the boy of immoral, erotic kisses with passionate, holy kisses. He heals the boy not by building a fence around the boy's heart, but by creating within him a new heart. He heals the boy not with law, but the gospel of grace. You know, legislation can restrain evil actions. But legislation is entirely powerless to take an evil heart and turn it into a good heart. For that, you need the holy kiss. In fact, if you look at the history of humanity, I think it's very safe to say that no force, including all the lawyers, all the courts, all the laws of all the religions and all the societies and all the lands has done as much to heal humanity of sexual infidelity as Jesus and his kissing disciples. You see, it's almost as if we were made for intimacy. Did you know that without it, infants will actually die? Little children will grow insane. It's as if each of us was, was made for intimacy, for intimate communion, legitimate holy communion. And, and without it, we're like starving people who will, who will just eat poison if for only a minute we think it will fill our empty guts. Joe Dallas, the founder of Genesis Counseling, which helps men dealing with sexual sins, he writes this. Intimacy is like water. Our need for it turns into a craving that will drive us to do almost anything to get it. We may even drink seawater or gutter water if our thirst is intense enough and we don't think there's another way to satisfy it. There's a song by Stephen and Annie Chapman that goes like this. Daddy, you're the man in your little girl's dreams. You are the one she longs to please. There's a place in her heart that can only be filled with her daddy's love. But if you don't give her the love she desires, she'll try someone else, but they won't satisfy her. Don't send her away to another man's door. Nobody else can do what you do. She just needs her daddy's love. Get the point? So fathers, if you want to help your children develop a godly sex life, don't give them less kisses. Give them holy kisses and a whole lot of holy kisses. And fathers, if you have a child that struggles sexually, I'm not saying that it's your fault. Our Father in heaven has a whole lot of children that struggle sexually. And you see, it's because they 
do not trust his kiss, the Father's kiss. Remember, he created us with a kiss. <laughs> Bent down, scooped up some adama, some clay, and breathed into it like a kiss. The ancients believed that a kiss transferred spirit, which means breath, same word, spirit, breath. He breathed into the clay and Adam became a nephesh, a living soul. In John 20, the resurrected Christ appears to his disciples and breathes on them like a kiss, saying, receive the spirit. And that's how we're made in the image of God. So kisses can be dangerous. But far more dangerous is not believing, not receiving your father's kiss. You have a father and you have a mother. She's called the church. She's the Lord's bride, his body, his temple, and the Lord may just use her to give you a kiss. <laughs> so turn to your neighbor. Just turn to your neighbor and look at him, okay? Right now, we're not actually gonna do it. I just want you to pucker up, okay? Turn and look at them. Just look at them. It doesn't matter, male, female, whatever. Come on, do it. Look at someone and pucker up. You know how to pucker up? You go like this. Just do that. Make that. Make your lips like that, like about to give a kiss. Now, just, just look at those lips, okay? Look at them. Isn't that weird? Kind of almost gross, you know? You, you know, uh, Spirit, breath, passes in and out of their body through those lips. And those lips are, they're tender. There's nerve endings throughout those lips. They're vulnerable, they're, they're vulnerable. That uh, spot in between, that hole, goes right down into the interior of their being, next to their heart. You see, kisses make us vulnerable. Of course they're dangerous. They make us vulnerable. And some of you have been terribly abused by unholy kisses. So that makes you never, ever, ever want to risk kissing again. Well, you need to know you're not the only one. Not the only one who's been betrayed with a kiss. Remember Jesus? See, that's what amazes me about the, the kissing commandment. Jesus is betrayed with a kiss, and check this out, the Bible doesn't use the word for regular kiss, but super-duper kiss. He was betrayed with a super-duper kiss, and then we're all commanded to kiss. Paul felt betrayed by the Corinthians. He writes his letter in tears. They hurt him incredibly severely, and yet he ends both letters with greet each other with a holy kiss. You know, to be betrayed by your enemies hurts, but to be betrayed by your friend, well, that hurts like hell. And Jesus said, greater love has no man than this. They lay down his life for his friend. And Judas kissed Jesus. And Jesus called him friend. It would have hurt so much less if Jesus would have said, you piece of crap. but he called him friend. I mean, he received Judas's kiss. Jesus drank the kiss into the core of his being, I think, and so the betrayal, it did hurt like hell. In fact, it was, it was hell in some way. 
But you see, a kiss makes, makes us vulnerable. Who is it that can hurt me the most? Well, it's the ones I kiss the most. My bride, my children, Jonathan, Elizabeth, Becky, Coleman, my family, my church. If you do church like Jesus, you'll get hurt. You'll give your heart and someone will hurt it. If you keep on giving your heart, it's called forgiveness. But you look an awful lot like Jesus. However, you will be tempted to stop. You will be tempted to stop. You will be tempted to take your heart and wrap it in legislation and arrogance. C.S. Lewis wrote, remember, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. The only place safe outside of heaven where you can be uh, safe from all the, the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. You know, in working with those uh, abuse victims, it, it seemed to me that there was one common denominator in their abusers, and that was that none of those abusers ever believed or really received their, their father's kiss, the, the holy kiss, and so they wrap their hearts in hell. And that puts a person in a hellish dilemma, both longing for kisses and absolutely terrified of real kisses. For once you hide your heart in hell, you desperately long for kisses and yet real kisses burn. See, if I'm trying to be all like powerful and intimidating to you, and you kiss me, your kiss totally messes up my facade, burns my facade. If I'm trying to be selfish and you kiss me, your, your kiss hurts my selfishness. If I'm trying to be arrogant and, and you give me a kiss, your kiss burns my pride. If I'm trying to be angry at Susan, you know, which sometimes I am, just a little bit ticked, you know, and she kisses me, Totally messes up my anger, messes it up. If I'm trying to be your enemy and, and you feed me, give me something to drink, shower me with kindness, it's like you're heaping burning coals on my head. You see, good kisses judge us and they burn away evil. In his novel, The Brothers Karamazov, through one of his characters, I haven't read the whole novel. I mean, geez, this is the age of TV. It's just huge. But anyway, through one of his characters, <laughs> um, he tells this incredible story that you can read in the middle of the novel called The Myth of the Grand Inquisitor. In, in the story, Jesus comes to Seville, Spain during the Spanish Inquisition, but the Grand Inquisitor has Jesus arrested and imprisoned. He tells Jesus that he has joined those who are correcting his work, those who are ridding the world of the terrible burden of having to choose the good in freedom. Those who will tell the masses whom to marry, whom not to marry, when to have children, when not to have children. In other words, those who will regulate and legislate every kiss. And so the Grand Inquisitor sentences Jesus to death. He falls silent, this old man, this Grand Inquisitor, waiting for Jesus to answer. And then Dostoevsky writes this, the old man longs for him to say something however painful, however terrifying, but instead, Jesus, he, he suddenly goes over to the old man and kisses him gently on his old bloodless lips. 
and that is his only answer. The kiss glows in his heart. It burns him. You see, the kiss is judgment. When George Wishart was being executed in 1546 for preaching the gospel against the dictates of the Roman Catholic Church, it's recorded that at one point his executioner just hesitated, and at that, George Wishart bent over to him and he said, uh, this is a token to show you that I forgive you. And then he kissed him. Wow, I bet that kiss burned. The holy kiss is judgment. When we resist it, it burns. When we surrender to it, nothing is as sweet. Kisses make us vulnerable, kisses judge us, and kisses romance us. Six years ago, I preached uh, on this verse, um, and a, a woman sent me an email in, in response. In it, she described this dream which she had had five years earlier that she said clearly God had, had given her. She, she'd gone to sleep just condemning herself, mad at herself for a bunch of things, but she dreamed this dream and recorded it in her journal up, upon awakening. In the dream, she's walking down this highway. She says it's covered with dust, painted in, quote, sorrow and apathy, and then she sees this group of men just mill about and she longs for one of them to, to, to notice her and then and then she writes this this is this is her dream she writes my heart resigns itself to being overlooked and then I see one of them look at me he will not look away she describes some more and then and then she writes this I, I, I go to him he holds me in his arms and I feel his lips on mine it is a kiss that takes nothing from me. He gives everything in it. And in that moment, I know down to the core of my being that I am deeply wanted beyond imagination. And in that kiss, I know purity and passion as one. There is no impurity in true passion, for he is passion. I am held, I am beautiful, I am deeply loved. And in his embrace, I know that I am worthy of all his love because he wants me. And that in itself makes me worthy. His kiss floods me with warm sunshine and deep peace. I am finally able to rest, to breathe, in knowing that this man will never reject me. He knows, he knows all my wounds and broken, dirty places, and he still believes that I'm beautiful, that I'm worthy. He still sees me as perfection. He loves my white skin and my dark hair. He gives me gifts. He loves me, but I do not love him. Or do I? If I do, it is deep down inside me. I leave him there by the road. His dark eyes watch me leave, but he's not angry. He is longing with his whole heart for me to change my mind and choose him. He is patience incarnate. He has a grim, steady look in his eyes and in his demeanor that promises he will wait forever if necessary, and at the end of forever, he will still love me as much then as in the very beginning. Now, I know, I know that I will always be a great beauty to him, and he will always want me. There is nothing in heaven or hell that will change that. Well, in the letter, she shared with me how that kiss had 
haunted her, judged her, romanced her for five years as she had run from the Lord. And then she wrote, thank you for reminding me of the holy kiss. See, the holy kiss was sweet and it burned. It romanced. Kisses judges, kisses romances, kisses changes. You know when you were a kid and you were mad at your mom? And your dad made you kiss your mom. You didn't want to kiss your mom, but you kissed your mom because you had to kiss your mom. It kind of changed you a little bit, didn't it? Changed something down inside. See, kisses change us. They're like sacramental. According to one study, husbands who kiss their wives every morning live five years longer than those who don't. They also experience less illness, suffer uh, uh, fewer accidents, and earn 20 to 30% more than non-kissers. I mean, that ought to motivate you, guys. Kisses changes and, and kisses create us. Benjamin West is considered by some to have been the greatest painter in the history of North America. 200 years ago, as a small boy, his mother uh, left the house one day, leaving him in charge of his sister Sally. Um, but instead, he neglected his duties and pulled out a set of paints that he had gotten from some Indians. And this was a big deal back then because their family was Quaker and they weren't even supposed to paint. Well, he proceeded to make a, a great mess of things and his mom came home early. She surprised him discovered the mess, he braced himself for her judgment. She looked at him, looked down at the picture, picked it up and said, Benjamin, what a wonderful picture of your sister Sally. And then she kissed him on the cheek. Benjamin West used to say, it was that kiss that made me a painter. <laughs> Kisses change us. Kisses create us. And the holy kiss brings us home. Two years ago, I told you one of my favorite stories about Joe Bailey and his son, Tim, just two years ago, so I won't tell the story, but if I were to tell the story, this is what I'd say. Um, Tim rebelled against his, his dad, Joe, Pastor Bailey, it ran off and joined a, a commune and broke Joe's heart. Joe tried everything he could to, to get to his son, Tim, this young man, Tim, and then one night, uh, he got a call uh, several years ago around uh, 11 p.m. They lived in Illinois. He got a call, and on the end of the line, this voice said, uh, yes, this is the police in such and such a town, and we have your son, Tim, in the town jail. He's been arrested on a DUI. You need to come get him. So Joe got up out of bed, got dressed, drove half hour through the freezing cold, that cold night to this town, went into the jail, talked to the jailer, and they said, well, we don't have any Tim Bailey here. And so Joe thought to himself, well, I must have the wrong town. And so he drove to the next town, no Tim Bailey. He drove to the next town, drove to the next town, drove to the next town, until finally four in the morning he thought to himself, well, maybe he, he found his way home somehow. Maybe he's at that house in downtown Chicago. And so um, Joe drove to the house where he knew that Tim was staying. The front door was open. He walked in. Kids are just strewn across the floor, sleeping on old blankets and sleeping bags. And, and in the dark, on the other side of the room, Joe saw his son Tim. And quietly, so as to not wake anyone up, he just gingerly stepped around the bodies, found his son lying on the floor in the sleeping bag, and then just moved with this great compassion. He bent down, quietly kissed his son on the cheek, turned around and <laughs> went home. 
In the weeks to follow, Tim started coming home. And then he rededicated his life to Christ, he said. And then he announced to everyone that he was going into the ministry. A few years later, one particular day, Joe and Tim went for a walk, and, and this question had just been bugging Joe, and so he finally turned to Tim and he said, Tim, tell me, wh- what was it that, that brought you back? I don't understand, what brought you back? And, and Tim said, well, you don't know, Dad? He said, no, I don't know. He said, well, don't you remember years ago when you got that phone call about me being in jail? Dad, I wasn't in jail. That was a prank, that, those were my friends. And then, Dad, when you showed up at four in the morning after I knew that you drove through the freezing cold all night long looking for me, and all you did was come over and just lightly kiss me on the cheek, Dad, it was the kiss that brought me home. It's the Father's kisses that make him vulnerable to his children. For it's his children that break his heart and nail it to a cross. And yet the prodigal father will not stop kissing his children. So the prodigal father runs to the prodigal son out on the road, showers him with kisses and brings us all home, brings us home and makes everything new. I didn't teach my kids this. I mean, maybe Susan did, I don't know. I just think they they knew this. But when they were little, uh, whenever they would get a wound, an owie, they would just come running to me, screaming their heads off for me to kiss it. And as a new father, I remember this was the thing that amazed me. They'd be screaming, yelling, out of control, kiss it, kiss it, kiss it, daddy. I'd kiss it and then immediately they'd they'd be okay. They'd smile, jump up, run off and, and start playing. And I remember thinking how bizarre was like the kiss made everything new. But the wound was still there. The pain was still there. Now listen, if I panicked, oh my gosh, and I didn't give them a kiss, they went berserk. They just totally freaked out. But, But the kiss, the kiss told them everything would be okay. They didn't know how it would be okay. They didn't know why it had happened or why it would be okay. But the kiss was like my judgment upon their wound. My judgment. And they trusted it. They believed it. I know it hurts. But I love you. And it's going to be okay. And then they were okay. My dad used to kiss me all the time. When I got older, more independent, and was trying to impress my friends, I, I started hating those kisses. I mean, they were really uncool. I'd be in front of junior high, seventh grade, and dad's, hey, sweetie. You know, dad, come on. Eight and a half years ago, my dad died. Six years ago, I preached on the holy kiss at my church. Four and a half years ago, I was removed from that church by people I dearly loved. At the time, I just wanted to bury my heart and never love again. But God seemed to have different plans. And so many of us started this new thing we called the sanctuary. That first year or two, I think, was probably the hardest time of my life. I really didn't understand, still don't really understand how it happened. I mean, people ask, what happened? I'm like, "Ah, I'll give you theories, but I'm not exactly sure. I don't understand how it happened. I don't understand exactly why it happened. But four years ago, one night, I remember in our service down at Central Press, I was preparing to preach during this time. And as I was sitting there, I just felt this 
little puff on the back of my head. I remember I turned like, who did that? And nobody was there. I think I felt it another time. I turned like, this is just, this is just weird. The next week, I quoted the Song of Solomon in my sermon and learned that a literal translation of the text we were looking at was the Lord puffs on his garden. Over the next uh, several months, it, it kept happening, puffing. I mean, like, in my hair, on my face, on my lips, on my mouth, on my hands. One time I was sitting there and I saw my nose do this, like that. I mean, I totally lost my ability to scientifically explain it away. I knew that God was doing something. I remember thinking, praying at the time, something like this. This was my prayer life. God, thanks for this. Whatever it is. But I'd like to know why all of this happened. I'd like to know how you're going to get it fixed. I'd like to know exactly what you're doing. And if, and if you're doing miracles, how about doing something a little more objective? How about doing something that would silence my critics? They would look at it and go, oh, yeah, he's obviously in the right. I mean, thank you for the puffing. <laughs> but what the hell are you doing? Sometimes it was strong. Sometimes it was weak. Sometimes others felt it too. I remember Barry saying one day he thought he, he felt it. But when I didn't feel it, I'd get stressed, really worried, like, oh crap, I did something and he's not puffing on me. <laughs> and we moved into, into this building. And I remember one particular Sunday night when we used to have Sunday night services in, in October, it was just nuts. I mean, the puffing thing was just like crazy all over my body, just poof, 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 going off all over. We were just sitting there in that chair, just kind of smiling, going, this is just nuts. And, and, and I looked over at Susan, and I noticed that Susan had suddenly started writing, frantically writing. And she has this, like, she has this gift that's pretty amazing to me. And when she hears God say something, she has to write it down really quick or she'll forget. And this is what she wrote. This is a picture of it. Peter, I have never stopped kissing you. Sometimes my kisses are sweet. Sometimes they burn. But believe this, my kisses never stop. I love you. You know, the enemy tells us that this life is all about convincing our Lord to kiss us. The Christian faith is all about believing that our Lord has kissed us and will not stop kissing us. Well, it wasn't long after that October night that I, that I stopped feeling the puffing. But I know that I must not stop believing in the kisses. And you know what helps me believe in the holy kisses? When one of you gives me a kiss and says, Peter, I love you. God loves you. Last week we spoke on worship. In Greek, the, the word is proskuneo. This is fascinating to me, but philologists word study guys, believe that the word literally means, comes from this meaning to kiss toward, to kiss, kiss the Lord, like you would kiss a king, to kiss the Lord. And, and where is the Lord? Well, he's in his body. His sanctuary. His temple. And what is his temple? <laughs> yep. Those stinky people sitting next to you. When you kiss them, you kiss Jesus. 
Wow. I mean, if we actually believe that, if we really believe that, that might heal us of all our sexually immoral kisses and turn all of our kisses into holy kisses. <laughs> so what am I saying? What's the practical application point, Pastor? 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 20b. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Gah! Where are we gonna get the holy mojo to do that? Well, I received from the Lord, in the words of Paul, what I also handed over to you. That on the night Jesus was handed over, and remember he was handed over with a kiss. He was betrayed by a kiss. We all betrayed him with a kiss, and yet the Father would not stop kissing. On the night that he was handed over, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you, broken body for, for you, take and, and eat. And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, do it in remembrance of me. Do it in remembrance of me, body broken and blood shed. Talk about vulnerability. Talk about judgment, forgiveness, redemption. Talk about making all things new. Do you see what the Lord is asking you? He's asking you to come to his table and take his body broken, his blood shed, to take his wounds, the wounded flesh of the martyros, the witness, uh, to take his body, take his flesh, and plant it on your kisser and ingest it into your gut. This is the holy kiss. If you wanna know, does he love you so? It's in his kiss. That's where it is. And so come to the table. The father runs to you out on the road, run to him at his table, run to him and receive his kiss and worship. In Jesus' name, worship. The cup knew they were safe. A wave of love swept over them. And as they reached for each other... What? What? Now nah, it's kissing again. You don't want to hear that. I don't mind so much. Okay. Since the invention of the kiss, there have been five kisses that were rated the most passionate, the most pure. This one left them all behind. The end. Now I think you ought to go to sleep. Okay. Uh, okay. 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 All right. Hello. Grandpa? Maybe you could come over and read it again to me tomorrow. 
as you wish. So what do you wish? What does the grandfather wish? Why is he doing that story time? Why is he telling this story? Why is the father telling the story of your life and telling the story of Jesus' life, the great bridegroom? Well, you see, I think it's because he's bound and determined to turn you into a great kisser. And he wants your kiss. And his kingdom is all about kissing. And if he were to kiss you right now in this feeble body in which you live, it would just melt you to the core. So he's telling you a story. It's story time. And, um, well, that's what he wants, a kiss. You see, it's good news. And so in Jesus' name, believe the gospel. And, and now, though, before you go, I need to say we're going to have a congregational meeting this real quick, so we really want you to, to stay for a minute. Um, also, if you'd like prayer, members of the ministry team will be over here on the side. And so the band's going to sing one more song, okay, and then we're going to have our congregational meeting, and so you, you need to stay here. But before we go, some of you are still nervous, aren't you? <laughs> You're going, okay, something's missing here. And, and I said, I'm not going to make you kiss, okay? I didn't write the Bible, all right? I didn't write it. I didn't write the authoritative word of God that when you call Jesus Lord, you say you will obey, okay? I didn't write, greet one another with a holy kiss. That wasn't me, I didn't do it. So, if you're new, don't stress about this, you know, you're okay, you can go, go like this. But, but if, if you've been around here a while, you call Jesus Lord, you, you wanna obey scripture, okay? Well then, I, I, I would suggest you, you do something like this. Don't wait. For, the worst thing that could happen is if we create a bunch of people sitting around going, oh, nobody kissed me. Don't wait <laughs> for other people to kiss you, okay? Paul didn't say that. He said, greet one another with the holy kiss. So that means you, you look around, you see someone that, that, looks like, <laughs> that looks like they need a kiss, <laughs> all right? And you just, you look kind of nervous. You okay? My palms are sweaty. And you, you just, you go over to him, you say, you know what, Michael? Our father is nuts. He's, he's nuts about you. Then you give him a kiss, okay? So greet one another with a holy kiss and stick around for the congregational meeting. There you go. Does he love me? 